Everybody wants to love and be loved. Everybody wants to be treated with respect and dignity. Everybody wants to grow as a human being. Everybody wants more for themselves and their families. And after that, you know, the rest is just commentary. Different food, you know, different way, different religions, different colors of skin, but, but human beings are human beings. And so that's how we try to treat everybody in the same way as human beings. You know, wherever you go in the world, a latte is a latte. And how we treat people is the same. This is the Beats Working Show. We're on a mission to redeem work, the word, the place, and the way. I'm your host, Mark Wright. Join us at Winning the Game of Work. Hey, welcome to Beats Working, Winning the Game of Work. When entrepreneur Dan Rogers, my boss, first approached me about hosting this podcast, the very first person I thought about interviewing is the guest we have today, former Starbucks president Howard Bihar. I've known Howard for a number of years now, and I've been so inspired by his life's work as a servant leader. I think if every corporate leader in America showed up the way Howard has for decades, we would have a very different workplace, a much better one. Howard is one of the world's leading advocates of servant leadership, but he's the first to tell you this is not a management style. He calls it a lifestyle. Howard's journey as a business leader is just simply remarkable. He joined Starbucks in the middle of his career. Did you know this? He was in his 40s at the time. And when he first met with CEO Howard Schultz, it did not feel like a good fit for either of them. But they later reconnected and a legendary partnership was born. So how did this guy who barely made it through high school, those are Howard's words, help create one of the most iconic and successful brands in history? We answer that question, and we also reveal a bunch of Howard's wisdom, like the best questions to ask people during a job interview, and how to coach employees, this is a great story, who rub their coworkers the wrong way. We also talk about how Starbucks almost killed a $4 billion product that a district manager came up with, and the personal mission statement that Howard Bihar looks at every morning when he gets up, and he's done that for more than 50 years. Howard Bihar helped grow Starbucks from a couple of dozen stores to more than 15,000. And he says the secret to its success is really not a secret at all. What I've admired about Howard over the years is his honesty and commitment to making work good for everyone. He's always led by example and in doing so has inspired all of us to find new ways of serving others at work and in life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Howard Bihar. So, Howard, first of all, welcome to the Beats Working Podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. So you and I have known each other for a little while, and we've had several conversations over the years about work. And I'd love to start way back. What's your earliest recollection of work when you were a kid? When I was 13, I started to work in a furniture store dusting furniture. And... Um, and that was really my very first job that I did it, you know, maybe three, four days a week after school in a family's furniture store. So that was my first job. And I've pretty much been working ever since, since I was 13. I, I don't think there ever was a year when I didn't work at something. So was that Bihar's furniture in, in Everett there? It actually, it wasn't. I did work there, amazingly enough, when I was in college, but that's not even, not even a relative. No, it was my brother-in-law's furniture store called Schoenfeld Furniture. Yeah. Wow. 
And also, you your folks had a market when you were a kid as well, and that 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 created some formative, uh, you know, lessons for you as a kid, didn't it? Yeah, my dad had a small mom and pop grocery store. Both of my parents were immigrants, and I my dad actually retired when I was twelve, so I never really got a chance to work in the store. But I was in the store every day. I did little things. I wasn't going to get paid. It was not a job, but. But, you know, you learn valuable lessons watching your parents work as hard as I watched my parents work, as hard as they worked. And uh, my dad would get up every morning at 4 o'clock, go down to Western Avenue, Produce Row, pick up the produce, bring it back to the store, clean it all up, put it out, open the store at about 8 o'clock, close the store down at 6, was home by 6.30, ate his dinner, and went to sleep on the chair. Wow. Watched him do that day after day after day after day. Fortunately, they, in those days, they weren't open nights and they weren't open on Sundays. whole different world than there is today. So, Howard, take me back to when you and Howard Schultz first met. Uh, I would love to hear that story of how the two of you first connected. Well, I had been president of a company in the Seattle area that was in uh, recreational land development, and I basically <clears throat> lost my job and I had to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up, and I was a, in my early 40s, and I decided I wanted to buy a business, and so I started looking around. Well, along the way, a friend of mine, a guy named Jeff Brotman, who was one of the co-founders of Costco, uh, was on the board of, of Starbucks, this little tiny coffee company. And he said, you need to meet Howard because he could use somebody like you. And I said, you know, I really want to do my own thing, but I'm happy to meet him. And so Howard and I had breakfast. And they had about 11 stores at the time. And and we had a nice breakfast, a nice conversation. He was looking for a vice president of operations. He was planning on growing the company quite rapidly. And so he had a list of 10 criteria. First thing, a college degree. I didn't have that. Second thing, uh, he had to have food service experience. I didn't have that. We got down to number 10, finally something I qualified for. Can I breathe? Yes, I could breathe. So, you know, I wasn't right for him. I really wasn't interested in and we parted ways, and about a year passed, and by accident, I I found a company to buy, and it was actually a franchise. Well, one of Howard's original investors was a guy named Jack Rogers, who was an expert in franchising. And so I went to visit Jack, and, and Jack, I said to Jack, this is what I'm trying to do, and he said, what do you want to do that for? We need a guy like you right here at Starbucks. And I explained that Howard and I had had this conversation. He said, no, we still haven't filled that role, and you'd be perfect. So he says, I want you to meet Howard again. So I did, and, and I met with Howard, and I said, Howard, how about before either of us makes a decision, or, or whatever, either way, why don't I work in the company for a week? I'll do it for free. I'd like to work in the stores for two or three days. I'd like to work in the trucks for a few days. I'd like to work in the roasting plant for a few days. And so I did that. By the end of the first week, I had decided, God, this is a great place. This has got great potential, and it fits me. And fortunately, Howard extended an invitation for me to join Starbucks. And, you know, I turned right instead of turning left. You know, so that's the way it was. So that's how I got there. It was just really by accident. But to have a friend like Jeff Brotman, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> you know, the fact that he and, and Jim Sinegal created one of the biggest, most successful companies on the face of the earth. How did you know Jeff from, from back in the I day? I knew Jeff from high school days, although we, he went to Tacoma. We both belonged to this, uh, let's just call it a young men's fraternity and together, and that's how we met. 
and I knew Jeff's dad, Bernie Brotman, who had Bernie's menswear, and of course I knew his brother Michael. So I, I had I had family acquaintances. That's really how it happened. It was more of a family kind of deal, not real family, but kind of family. Yeah. Howard, do you think it's? Uh, I I don't think it's coincidence. Maybe maybe you have a different view, but. Seattle has spawned some really amazing companies when it comes to valuing human beings and, oh, by the way, being super, super successful. When you start looking at Nordstrom and Starbucks and Costco, what do you think it is about Seattle and, and these companies that have gone on to become such powerhouse companies for the right reasons? Yeah, I think one thing is geographically where it was, where Seattle was located. I think that made a difference. I think number two, there there's a Scandinavian, Norwegian, Swedish kind of thing about Seattle. And if you know a lot of Scandinavians and Norwegians, they're pretty kind people. You know, they're uh, you know they were the fishermen. There were a lot of loggers. They and also, I mean, we were the last kind of place settled. In the United States, and I think there was this combination of things that helped Seattle value people. And um, because, you know, soft and gentle Seattle, you know, or some people would call us lefty Seattle, but I, I take that as a compliment. So, you know, I think that's the way it is. I mean, how many times have you ever heard a, a, a horn honk in Seattle? I, there have been times when I've been sitting at a light and not paying attention to the light. Nobody honk, nothing ever happened. The light turns red again. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, I missed the light. Nobody ever honked. Now, I was ready to go the next time because, you know, I didn't want anybody to shoot me, you know, but, but, you know, I mean, it's the truth. When you first met Howard Schultz, were you impressed? I mean, did, did he win you over with his, his, you know, business acumen, his personality? What was it about Howard that made you think that this is a, this is a good guy to partner with? It was with? his values. It wasn't, uh, I mean, Howard at that point in time was a young business guy. He had never run anything. You know, and um, but he we figured out how to raise the money to, to buy Starbucks when it became available for sale. And he had an entrepreneurial instinct. For the most part, it was he um, he had these strong values. And before I when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, you know, uh, about that time, I wrote down what I wanted out of a company. I wanted I wanted a company that respected its people. I wanted a company that I used to say the person that let the people in the company vote. Now I changed that to let the person who sweeps the floor choose the room. But when I compared this list of attributes that I wanted in this company I was going to build, they matched up to the attributes that Howard wanted to do. He wanted everybody to have equity in the company. He didn't want to build the business on the backs of people. He wanted to do it with people. And so it was those values that attracted me. We were totally in sync with that. And that's, that's what I loved about Howard and I continue to love about him to this day. Yeah, and Howard's experience as a kid, you know, watching yeah. his dad yeah. not be able to work, got hurt and wasn't yeah. able to work and, yeah. and uh, literally grew up in the projects yeah. uh, in the big city back east. For the right? most part, I didn't have that, but I didn't come from a wealthy family. I came from a yeah. lower middle class family. What we had was food on the table. You know, because they, kind of the fruit was brown and the vegetables were brown, but we had something to eat. So when you joined Howard and you started growing the company, I think you guys took it from something like 28 stores to more than 15,000. You were president of North American Operations. When you guys started to, to plan the expansion of Starbucks, Howard, what, what was key to the expansion? Because there are so many moving parts. 
location, financing. Uh, you know, I remember reading in Howard Schultz's biography that just raising the money in the beginning, people laughed at him and said, nobody's going to pay $2.50 for a cup of coffee. Yeah. You're crazy, exactly. right? Well, it, it, it was all those things, but primarily it was people. I mean, that's what makes Starbucks tick. And the truth of the matter is it's any, you know, every entrepreneur thinks it's about the product or service they're providing or selling. It's not. Once you hire one person, it's about the people. Once you hire somebody to help you now, it's completely about the people. And so that, you know, we were really conscious of that. And um, we attracted some really great people at the beginning that had some gray hairs. I was one of them. Warren Smith, who was another one. And a whole bunch of people that came along to, to help build the business. And, and all we did was hold tight to our values and, and get resources for our people to grow the business and make sure that what mattered to us, we stayed truthful to. And, and that, that's how the business grow, grew. It wasn't, there was no miracle. There was no, we weren't great marketers. Uh, we didn't have any special brain power or anything. You know, here's a guy that barely got out of high school, you know, and I'm running the, all these stores, you know, in the, in the business. And uh, so it, it was people that, you know, and our ability to attract and keep good people. I'm looking for, I have uh, somewhere in my office here, an old coffee grinder where I used to take the stickers off of the bags of Starbucks coffee and I put the stickers like, kind of like a, a you know, a, you'd put like stickers on a suitcase when yeah. you travel the world. Right. But I remember in the early days of, of Starbucks, Howard, I don't recall you guys ever advertising. I, I don't, did, was that a did. conscious decision? We never did. Yeah, because we didn't have any money. Anyway, and our stores were our advertisement, and we just built it that way. It took longer, but over time, as we opened more and more stores and went into different cities, then people already were waiting for us and knew about us. You know, so, yeah, we weren't – we still are not big advertisers. I mean, the out, main advertisement that's been done is with our joint venture of Pepsi, which is the bottled Frappuccino and those products, and they do that advertising. We don't. Yeah. How much research goes into – well, back then and now goes into where you guys place stores, where stores are located. Is it is it a really well? You know, at at the beginning, it wasn't so much research research. It was feelings about what we believed where the stores could go. At the beginning, we did not understand how big this company could be. We had no idea, and so we didn't place stores close together. And then, by accident, we placed a few stores close together, and lo and behold, we doubled the business in the area. And so all of a sudden we realized this is a bigger opportunity than we ever thought we'd have. So, um, you know, it's, it, then over time we got better at identifying where we should be. And, and we had professionals on our teams that would do that. And we made a few mistakes along the way, but not very many. Can you give us some insight, Howard, into how you hired people? I think, I think for those of us who've been part of the hiring process over the years, even now I feel like it's kind of a mystery how you really find out who that person is in the job interview. Do you have any any insight, any, any tips on the best way to hire good people? Well, here's what I believe, that you're not hiring somebody, you're inviting them to join you. You're inviting them into your home. And so who would you invite in your home? People that you, that you trust, people that, that are kind, People that share your values, you know, uh, they're not the same as you, but but 
But that's how you hire good people. That's how you, you, I always interviewed to values first, not to skills. You know, if, if we were hiring somebody to go into accounting, you know, I wasn't an accountant. So the people in accounting could, could interview to skills. I, I, I talked, I interviewed and talked about values. I want to know who the people were. What matters to them? I wanted, I'd ask questions like, tell me what your brother or sister likes about you. I say, what don't they like about you? What do your parents wish you would have become versus what you've become? What's the most difficult human, human experience that you've ever had that was really conflicted? And how did you deal with it? And how do you, what do you, how do you feel about yourself? What do you like about yourself? What don't you like about yourself? And, you know, you can't be dishonest about those things. You can try, but after 10 or 11 questions, <laughs> it all comes through. You can tell when somebody's faking it. So I always believe hire to values first, then to skills. And that's really what made Starbucks work. And that's why, and at, then after a while, what happens in organizations, like attracts like. You know, people that are nice and care about others want to come. And the ones that sneak through the door and don't care about others, eventually they, you know, they find a way out, you know usually on their own sometimes we have to help them but but uh you know that's the way it is and you know what what kept starbucks going is that it didn't make any difference what job you had what level of company you're at if you messed with the people we would try to help coach you and get you better but if you couldn't get on board with treating people with respect and dignity you weren't going to be there now does it always work no i mean company as big as starbucks today with as many people get people in the company that you know that aren't who we'd like them to be. And eventually it gets sorted out, but, but sometimes it takes time and it can do some damage along that way. I heard you tell the story one time about somebody that you had to coach to a, a better way. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but I think it was when you were starting to roll out the food service side of things in Starbucks. If you could, if you could go back to that story, I, I just think it's genius and, and something that a lot of bosses could, could learn from, because I think it's, I think a lot of times bosses think, well, you, you either fit in or you don't and, if you, and just get out if you can't do this. But you had such a great way of coaching people to become a, a better self. Yeah, I don't believe that they're, they, not everybody comes with the same skill sets. So you try to have people with the human skill sets, but a lot of people don't have all of it. And, and they make mistakes along the way. So this was a guy named Dan. Dan was one of the smartest guys that I think I've ever had that reported to me in my life. And Dan wanted to get into operations. And I didn't think that Dan was right to run stores, but I thought that he could run some of the operating side of the business. I thought he could do the food side of our business. And so I convinced Dan with a lot of other people to take the position, and he was in charge of food in our stores. And so Dan started to move the ball forward and did some things, but along the way, Dan broke some glass. Dan was one of those kind of guys that was dealt 50 cards in a 52-card deck. And the two cards he was missing was this empathy card, this people card. It wasn't that he didn't care about people or love people, but he sometimes got ahead of himself. You know, he so focused on the results that he forgot that it was people that he was working with. So anyway, I got continued to get some complaints from some of the Dan's direct reports. And so I asked Dan, I said, Dan, can I talk to your people? You know, I asked for permission about, you know, how maybe you can work together with them. And he said, of course, and I did. 
So I talked to his people and I said, tell me about Dan. I said, do you think dad adds value in what he's doing? And they uniformly said, yes, he's really smart. He really understands our business. And I said, then what is it about Dan that's getting to you guys? He says, he's insensitive sometimes. He gets so caught up in what he wants to do and getting something done that he rolls over us. And he doesn't listen when he should. And so I said, okay, I, I, want, I want you and Dan to come together, each of you individually. And when Dan says something you don't like, I want you to use a, a code word that you agreed to between the two of you. So let's say Dan is saying something you don't like. Maybe your code word is blue. Dan, blue. Right? And then so it alerted Dan to Dan wasn't where he needed to be. Each person had their own code, code word with Dan. And over time, what that did uh, is it awakened Dan to what was going on and how he was acting. And eventually, they worked together. Now, not everybody could deal with a Dan. A lot. Of, you're right. A lot of people just say, "I don't. I don't have." Dan was a, what I would call a high maintenance guy, right? He was in my office every day, wanting to talk about something. But that's okay because there's some people that you never never come into your office. That they, if you see him once a year, it's enough. But Dan needed to see and, and get feedback all the time. So eventually what happened, Dan, after I retired, Dan got put in some other positions. The person he reported to couldn't deal with it. And they eventually let Dan go. But, you know, you lost somebody that was really good. And all you had to do was lead it a little better, manage it a little better. I'm, I'm not advocating for somebody that's destructive. I, yeah. you know, But I knew that Dan cared. And Dan was beside himself when he thought that people didn't that he didn't, people thought that he didn't care about him. I mean, he wanted to do everything to fix it. Yeah. And I think what's beautiful about that story, Howard, is that you actually showed the people who reported to Dan that, that you know, their feelings were, were important. Yeah. And the fact that they had a way of addressing someone who was like that, I think so often we don't, we don't have that, that upper manager who gives us that safety and security. It's just like, you know, deal with it. Put your head down and just deal with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, you were the founding president, as we mentioned, of Starbucks International. I guess I didn't right. mention that. But so you took the brand to something like 54 different countries. Right. What was the key to success, Howard, when you started taking this this company that started in Seattle and you started going to foreign countries all over the world? What was the key to that expansion? I think there's a, a number of things. The first thing was you had to have a purpose greater than just opening stores or selling cups of coffee. I needed that. I didn't really care about opening another store or selling another cup of coffee. That is the outcome of the work we did. But, but I had to have a purpose greater than than Starbucks and and or my and myself for our for myself and our team. And so I said we're going to use Starbucks to build bridges among people around the world. So the greater purpose was to see Starbucks as a bridge between people. So we had to act as bridge builders. How we treated others had to be the same no matter where we were. The second thing is we had to live by our values. Our values couldn't be different in China or, or Japan or England or Saudi Arabia. The values had to be the same. We had to be who we were. And so we couldn't we had we did everything with joint venture partners around the world pretty much. So we had to be in sync with those partners. A few times we weren't, we got out of sync with our partners. We chose the wrong partners and it took us a long time to clean that up in many countries, but, but eventually we fixed it up, fixed it. The other thing is, is we listened. We didn't, we didn't come in thinking we had all the answers. 
Now we said, let's, when we first went in, we said, let's do what we know how to do. But as soon as we sense it's not working, we need you to tell us what you think we should do. So we listened to our partners and, and our people, and they helped us make corrections that we needed to make along the way, from product to services to different things that we did. So it's, you know, it's being aware, paying attention, you know, not trying to jam things down people's throats, you know, understanding that, that different countries, you know, might have different cultural things that they do. But pretty much, you know, no matter where I would have been in my life, and I've been to 90 countries, everybody wants to love and be loved. Everybody wants to be treated with respect and dignity. Everybody wants to grow as a human being. Everybody wants more for themselves and their families. And after that, you know, the rest is just commentary. Different food, you know, different way, different religions, different colors of skin. But, but human beings are human beings. And so that's how we try to treat everybody. You know, wherever you go in the world, a latte is a latte. And how we treat people is the same. And the fact that you're able to sell tea to countries like China and Japan, I mean, how, how did that work, yeah. Howard? Well, we sold coffee, mostly. We did sell yeah. some tea along the way. But because, you know, the truth of the matter is Japan was the first country we went into outside of North America. And Japan was a big coffee-consuming country. They, they, they were like number three or four in the world at that time mm. in terms of pounds of coffee consumed. So, you know, it wasn't like we were teaching people the taste of coffee. But we did bring something new, like the paper cup and disposable cup and those kinds of things. And, um, uh, you know, people would walk down the street drinking coffee with the logo out, you know. Mm. So. so, Howard, you've been uh, – you're famous for saying – you know, whoever sweeps the floor should decide which broom to buy. And I love that. And at the heart of that is is really just empowering your employees to to take control of the process that, that they obviously would know better than an upper manager would know. I love the story of how the Frappuccino uh, was discovered and, and became such a huge part of the business model today. It was a, a, a regional manager, right, in the Los Angeles area? Manager, district manager. Her name was Dean. District manager. Yeah. So take us back to that time. I, I, this story, I think, says so much about not only who you are, but but who Starbucks is as, as a company. Yeah. So Dina was one of the first district managers, and she uh, invited me down to one of the stores to visit her. And when I went down to visit her, she took me on a tour of not only our stores, because she was proud of them, but on some competitor stores. And in one of the competitor stores, she bought me a drink. And she says... You know, we got about 30 people today coming into our stores asking for something like this. We don't sell anything like it. I said, really? I said, that's a great idea. You know, I mean, 30 drinks a day. It was selling for, at that time, about three bucks. Now it's probably double, you know. But, you know, that was times 30. It was 90 bucks a day times seven, you know, 600 bucks a week times 30,000 a year. I said, that's going to be a significant growth to our sales. And so I said, let me take your idea back to Seattle and see if I can't get some people to think about it and, and try to help. So I brought the idea back to Seattle and I, I got a group together and I presented, there was a head of marketing, head of product development. And I, I told them what Dana was thinking about. Remember Dana and her broom, right? Cause this is an analogy of a broom, her broom. And so without ever, we went through the room and the head of product development says, Howard, I appreciate Dana's ideas and her willingness to think about new things, but that's not something we're going to do. We're in the coffee business. We're not going to be selling that kind of drink. 
So, and I pressed and I said, really, we should just take a look at it. You know, what can it hurt? And he said, no, I'm sorry. You want me to call Dana? I said, no, I'll call Dana. So I called Dana and I explained to her what had happened. I said, let's give it six months. We'll come back at it. So about three weeks later, I get another call from Dana. Howard, can you come down and visit me again? I said, Dana, what is it you want? She says, well, I, there's something about that drink I want to show you. I said, Dana, you know the answer. Can't Let's just leave it alone. She said, no, really, Howard. I really want you to take a look. So can you come down again? I said, well, I'm not going to make a special trip, but I have to be down there in three weeks to look at some real estate. I'll stop by on this day. And so I did. I walked into the store. It was a Third Street Promenade store in Santa Monica, California, a real kind of tourist area in Santa Monica. So I went into the store and she said, go sit down over there. And I did. I sat down at one of our little tables and she brought over three little sample cups and she said, try this. And I took a sip and I just looked at her. I said, Dina, this tastes remarkably like that drink we tried in, the, in that competitor store. Are you trying to get me fired? And she laughed and she said, no. She said, Howard, please let us try this. I'm telling you, we are losing business right and left. We got to do something here. So it was one of those times in all leaders or managers, you know, journeys that sometimes you got to make a decision that may go against, you know, the flow. And, and I had a lot of responsibility and I was not afraid, you know, I'd lost my jobs before that <laughs> wouldn't be the first time. So I said, okay, Dina, you want to try this? You can try it, but do not tell a soul and you can't have any signage. Your baristas can tell people about the drink, but no signage. And lo and behold, Dana tried it. And I said, Dana, you call me every night and tell me how the sales are. Because if it's not going well, we're getting rid of it quick. And so the first week, Dana didn't sell 30 drinks a day. She sold 50 drinks a day per store. The third, second, third week, she sold 70 drinks a day per store. I'm thinking to myself, Howard, you are a genius. <laughs> you know? So I invited Dana back up to Seattle with her team, brought all their equipment and their supplies, and I invited the whole group again together, only this time I invited Howard Schultz. So I had Dana bring in some sample cups. Everybody got something. Well, the head of marketing and product development stood up, and he just pointed his finger at me. And he said, Bihar, I told you we weren't going to do this. And he looked at Howard Schultz. He said, Howard, you tell Bihar to stop this right now. It's my decision, not his. And I looked at Howard, and I had this sheet of paper with the sales on it and what the what it was going to mean to the company. It was going to be huge if it worked. And I said, Howard, give me 90 days. If you don't like it in 90 days, if you just don't like the smell in 90 days, we'll get rid of it. Well, I've been in retail my whole life. I know something's selling. It never goes away. So Dina and her broom. Dina was the one that created Frappuccino and... You know, I had never liked rules, and I only had four rules for my people. Don't do anything illegal. Don't do anything immoral. Don't do anything unethical. And sure as hell, don't poison anybody. As long as you can live by those rules, we could try anything. <laughs> so, you know, Dean and Abroom ended up being 20% of the company sales at one time. And I think it's around a $4 billion business today, including bottled frappuccino. $4 billion. Yeah, yeah go figure, huh? So, you know, you gotta, you can't just roll your eyes at people. you got to listen to your people. Now, not every idea is going to be a $4 billion idea. But there's lots of little things that people can improve the business that, you know, or, or improve one of, a process or whatever it is. Listen to your people. They'll tell you what needs to be done. I have found that if I asked a barista enough, asked enough different baristas, enough different store managers, district managers, they could tell you everything I needed to know. As a leader, you don't have to be the idea guy. I wasn't. Howard was much more of an idea guy than I ever was. 
What I was was an alchemist. I would take other people's disparate ideas and I had the innate ability to put them together and to bring, make something out of that. I wasn't the only, you know, I wasn't just about me. It was about, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it was about the other people doing it. You know, a lot of companies say that they care about their employees, yeah. but I don't know that a lot of people know that when you were president of Starbucks, you used to write birthday and anniversary cards to every single employee right. until you hit about 10,000 right. employees. I mean, that must have just been, I mean, you told me one time that you just pack a stack of cards and when you flew anywhere, you just start signing cards on the airplane. Yeah, I take these boxes. I take, the, I, the, they're pretty good sized boxes. I take four boxes time together, take them on the airplane and I had these uh, FedEx envelopes. I'd sign all the cards and they they were, you know, pre-addressed uh, and they had dated and what the person's job title was and stuff when they needed to go out. And I'd send it back to my administrative assistant. So I just signed cards, signed cards. So we had about 10,000 cards. And then I convinced other people to do it too. I don't think they still do it. I think it's important. You know, Howard Schultz used to always say, create a, a, a big company that stays small. And that's a way to do it. You know, people, you know what is amazing? I've been retired for, let's see, I don't even know anymore, over 10 years. People still come up to me that I know that worked at Starbucks and say, Howard, I still have every card you ever sent me. I mean, you know how many people never get a birthday card even from their families? It's amazing. And it was just my way of caring about them. I didn't know all the people, but it doesn't make any difference. They knew I cared. Yeah, caring about employees is something that Starbucks has been very deliberate about since the beginning. I mean, the first company to give part-time employees full-time medical benefits. Yeah. You guys decided you should pay a buck above minimum wage in the beginning, which was a big a big deal financially. Yeah. When you look at the landscape across America today, Howard, what do you see in terms of which companies are doing it right and which companies are still just looking at the quarterly profit report? I think you know, I'm a retailer, so I always focus on the retailers. Costco, I think, yeah. is one of the great, great companies, really well-led, treats their people well. I think Container Store is really good. I think Nordstrom is really good, even though they're struggling a little bit right now. They're still – they're good people. They care about their people. I think there's a lot of companies. Most of them are – there's a lot of small companies that we'll never hear about, not know their name, that treat their people well. Unfortunately, there's a lot of companies that don't do that. Uber, for example – the guy that founded Uber was not a good person. The WeWork guy, same thing. Um, uh, uh, Wells Fargo didn't do a good job with the people. Volkswagen, you know, lied to their customers. I mean, you know, you can't do that and expect your people to care, you know. And so, you know, even Starbucks, you know, I mean, Starbucks is going through some tough, difficult times right now with the unionization of some stores. And I think some of it's probably deserved in certain areas of the country where, where we made some mistakes. You know, I'm not a believer that you have to have a union to have a good company. It's dif difficult for a company like Starbucks, which has, you know, even at its best, which we're one of the best in the world, the lowest of turnover, we still have 80% turnover. So people are coming and going all the time because it's mm -hmm. the nature of the beast. It's the nature of the job. It's part-time work because we have cycles during the day and during the week. And so you can't just say, hey, you can come to work every day from 9 to noon. Sometimes it doesn't work. And now they, they give them schedules three, two or three weeks out in advance. That's the best, you know, good thing they, they can do. But you can do other things. Like you said, Starbucks, 
gave health care benefits. Starbucks gave same-sex partners benefits when no other companies were doing it. Even the unions around Seattle weren't advocating for it. Uh, we gave people uh, free tuition to get a college degree. Everybody gets a pound of coffee week free. You think that doesn't cost much. It costs about uh, about five six $600 a year per person. That's not insignificant. Um, uh, you know, many things that we do that other organizations didn't do. But but most importantly, you got to treat your people with respect and dignity. COVID caused a lot of issues between people, between the people and the companies because the companies didn't know what to do. The people didn't know what to do. You know, do we stay open? Don't we stay open? You know, Starbucks paid even its baristas for over three months after COVID started, even if it's, even if the people didn't work. Nobody was doing stuff like that. So, you know, I, I hope, I'm sure that, uh, that Starbucks will work it out. And, you know, if people really want a union, then, then they get a union. That's part of the, the way that America works. I don't think they'll get what they expect to get. I, I was a member of a union, so I know my wife was a member of the Service Employees Union for 12 years. So we're a union family. So I know how it works and how it doesn't work. And so we'll see what happens. But the Starbucks will continue on to be a good company, good to its people. And will it make mistakes? Yes, it will. But for the most part, its values will stay intact. One thing that I think is really neat about your career, Howard, is that you've been open about the idea that your views have changed yeah. over your career. I heard you say in an interview that when you first started in business, you thought that businesses existed to make a profit and yeah. to benefit the shareholders. Yeah. And and you say that's changed. When did when did that start to evolve in your mind when you started to realize that, man, it's, it's way more about the people than it is about the profit? When I was introduced to servant leadership, to Robert Greenlee's work on servant leadership, I all of a sudden I realized that that what really mattered in life was how you served each other, how you treated the people that you worked with that reported to you, and that uh, a leader's job is primarily to serve their people, to help their people grow as human beings, to grow as professionals, and to uh, and to achieve their their goals that they want to achieve. So we're here to serve our people, and that that journey began in my mid twenties. And I got more and more focused on it. And I look, companies need to make adequate profits or they're not going to be around. Right. You know, if you have shareholders, shareholders have to get rewarded. But I don't believe in maximizing shareholder return. I believe in optimizing. And that means that everybody's got to get their piece. And sometimes one one group will get more than the other. Sometimes another group will get more. And it's up to leadership to make sure that it's optimized, that you're not trying to build your company on your people's back. I'd like to ask you about a couple of Howardisms, as I call them. Um, I heard you say that the goal of life isn't happiness. Happiness is part of a fulfilling life. Tell me more. The goal of life should, you know, happiness comes and goes. Are we happy all the time? Do we get up in the morning every day? Are you happy? I'm not. I, I, there are sometimes I get up in the morning and my day is great. It could be bright sun out. I could be down here in Palm Springs where I am. It's going to be an 80 degree day and the damp day is still great. I'm not a happy camper. I don't know why all the time, but I'm not. So happiness kind of comes and goes. It's fleeting. Sometimes you know why you're happy. Sometimes you don't, you know, uh, but I think happiness is part of fulfillment. And I think leading a fulfilling life means that you experience all facets of life 
you experience happiness, you experience joy, you experience discomfort, you experience disappointment, you experience you experience pain, suffering, you, you experience death, you experience loss. And you put all those things together and you become a whole human being, leading a fulfilling life. One of the, one of the most um, interesting um, things that I, I experienced in my life was my daughter had a, a friend that was kind of a boyfriend. And, um, and unfortunately, he developed a severe drug, drug problem. And one day she called me up and, she, and I was up in the San Juan Islands with my wife, Lynn, and she said that he's going to die. And he's in a hospital down in, actually it was in Mount Vernon. And she said, Dad, can you please come home? I need some support. So I came home and I went to the hospital where she was at. And she, of course, was totally distraught. And, and so, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, you can't do anything. You, all you can do is just say it will be okay. And you hold them and you, and you shut up, you know. And you let them be. Mm-hmm. But I said, honey, can I go and sit with your friend? I'm trying to remember his name right now. I think it was Greg. And uh, and I went into the hospital room. And I had known him for a long time. And, and he was a nice kid, but he was just struggling with life. And, and so he'd overdosed on drugs. And he was not in a coma, but pretty close to actually in a coma. And I, and I said to him, you know, we love you. And it's okay to go if you need to go. And I want to tell you how much I've appreciated getting to know you as a human being. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the best in, in, in the future of how whatever is going to happen in the next steps of your life. And he passed away right in front of me. And you could almost see the relief on his face. And it, that wasn't my first experience with dying, but it was my kind of first experience being there when the person died. You know, and kind of there, and me conversing with them, and it was a valuable experience for me. Uh, you know, it's lessons learned. Which is to say that you know, every day isn't supposed to feel like going to Disneyland, right? Every day isn't supposed to be a perfect day. It's and that that was part of that was part of my yeah. fulfilling life. You know, uh, that. That was, uh, you know, that's I learned a valuable lesson. And it made me a better human being. It made me a whole human being. Another Howardism, wear one hat. You came to a point in your career where you decided that it was exhausting to be a different Howard in different situations. Where were you when you discovered that, Howard? Because it's such an important lesson. Well, I was working for a company called Grand Tree Furniture Rental, which you may remember. They used to have that building down at the end of, uh, of Boeing Field where the ter- curve and the I-5 was. Um, anyway, so I had been promoted to vice president of the company. And I never thought in my wildest dreams would a guy without a college degree ever get to be a vice president of a public company. One day I was standing by the elevator and the chairman of the board, a guy named Walker Treese, came up to me, put out his hand. He said, Howard, you know, I know I'm not the first to congratulate you, but, you know, I want to congratulate you on a well-deserved appointment. And I said, thank you, Walker. He said, but there's something I want to talk to you about. Well, you know, in those days, this was in the 70s, when the chairman of the board talked to you, it was like God was talking to you. So I said, Walker, what is it? And he said, well, one of the things I've noticed about you, Howard, and I know you want to be a great executive, but 
you know, you're always showing, wearing your heart on your sleeve. Everybody knows what you're feeling all the time. And he said, great executives don't do that. They hold their emotions inward, like hold your cards close to your vest. So the other thing I noticed about you is you're always willing to share your opinion. And, you know, great executives, you know, might say something, want to be shown that they're really smart. They might say something like, well, let me think about it for a couple of days and I'll get back to you. Well, I wasn't that person. And Walker's talking. I'm thinking to myself, why did they point, promote me if they, because I was that person. I had, my heart was on my sleeve and I was always willing to share my opinion about something. So I went from a guy that loved his job every day to a guy that hated his job. So finally I decided I was going to quit the company. And one more, I wrote up a letter of resignation and, and then that morning, the next morning I went into the company about six o'clock in the morning, hadn't been there early for a long time because I didn't want to go in, you know, and one of my co-vice presidents said to me, say, Howard, you got time for a cup of coffee? Hey, I had time for anything because I was going to resign that day. So his name was Jerry Alto. And I went and sat down with Jerry and he just looked at me and he said, Howard, what's wrong with you? The guy that we all supported to be the next officer of the company, you're not that guy anymore. Some of us think that you are all in it for yourself now. From the guy that used to always be willing to, to speak up and to sh share what he was thinking about and, and to show his emotions, you're not there anymore. And I shared the story of meeting with Walker, with Jerry, and he, and he started to laugh. And he said, oh, Walker didn't mean those things. I said, baloney, I was there. You weren't. Walker meant those things. He said, Howard, we're going to go talk to Walker. We're going to straighten this out. I said, you go talk to Walker. Well, we both went and talked to Walker, and the truth of the matter is Walker meant those things. Was Walker a bad guy? No. But he came from a different era of leadership. And the problem was I, didn't, I did not have the strength or the understanding about who I was to have a conversation with Walker where he could hear my side. I just took what he said and, and absorbed it and said, well, I must be wrong. And so from that day forward, I decided I was going to learn about how. So I, I developed, and I'll show it to you. This is Howard in 50 words or less on one sheet of paper. I've carried this around with me for, for well, let's see, I'm 78 for almost 50 years. It's changed over time. It has my mission statement, my core values, and my six Ps, how I do everything. So this is Howard's hat. This is the hat that I wear no matter where I am. I'm not talking about the hats that we wear in the roles that we play. I'm talking about the hats, the hat that we wear that describes in words who we are as a human being and how we want to live our life. So I just think that if you want to have a fulfilling life, you better be able to wear your hat no matter where you are, in your marriage, with your kids, with your family, in your work, whatever, whatever, wherever you are, you need to be able to be Mark, you need to be able to be Howard. But in order to do that, you got to write it down. You got to be clear about who you are, and then try to live do according you mind to how those words. Reading the mission statement part of your paper? No, no. To live, I want to live my life every day, uh, nurturing, and inspiring the human spirit, beginning with myself first, and then for others. And the reason why I say self first is what you learn after living as long as I have. That if you're not okay with you, very difficult to help another person. My core values are honesty, fairness, respect for self and others, responsibility, integrity, trust in self and others, caring and love. And then how I do everything, everything I do in my life has to be done with a purpose greater than myself. It can't be about me, just about me. And then if I have a purpose greater than myself, then I damn well better do it with passion. Scream it from the highest mountaintop. 
you know, be excited about your life and what you're doing. And, and you have to do it with persistence because there's lots of rocks in this river that we live called our lives. And you're going to have to get through them, over them, around them, or, or whatever it happens to be, or blow some of them up. Uh, but you got to have persistence to get what you want. If there was one, one value that Howard Schultz holds dearly is persistence. He doesn't know from no. As soon as you say no to Howard, that's the beginning of the conversation. And then patience. Patience matters. Not everything comes in the time frame that you want it to come in. Now, you'd think that patience and persistence are opposites of each other. They're not. They go together. You have to be patiently persistent because not everything, again, comes when you want it to come. And not everybody will sign on to what you're trying to do in the same time frame that you want them to. So you've got to be patient with yourself, most importantly, and patient with people. And then the most then performance really matters in life. We don't like that word performance because we don't like to be measured. But the truth of that matter, we're getting measured every day. If, if we're married, our significant other or spouse is measuring it. Our kids are measuring us against what we say and then what we do. You know, our bosses are measuring us. Our coworkers are measuring us. The communities in which we live measured. Our friends measure us. And so you got to get used to being measured. And they're not always going to tell you what they're thinking. But performance matters. If you make a commitment to another human being, live up to your commitment or tell them why you can't. So performance matters in this life. And then the most important P is people. Everything we do in life is about serving other human beings. It doesn't make any difference whether you're a widget maker, whether you're a reporter, whether you're a barista, whether you're a coffee maker, whether you're a doctor, lawyer, engineer, fire chief. It doesn't make any difference. Everything we do in life is about serving others. And we just have to not remember and not forget that. And, you know, you know, people say I, I, I'm, I'm burned out, you know, or whatever it is, or I'm bored or whatever it is. You'll never get bored or burned out. You may get tired, but you never get bored or burned out if you focus on serving others, if you understand why you're here. Wow. I heard, Howard, that you check in with yourself before you go to bed every night. Is that true? I do. I look in the mirror and say, Howard, how did you do today? How did you do today? I asked myself that question. How did I do today? And there are days when I did pretty well, and there are some days I'm not very happy with myself that I didn't live up to my values. You know, I did, didn't treat somebody with the respect and dignity that they deserve, I, whatever it was. And I find it helps me. Keeps, me, keeps me in an equilibrium. You know, I have this board of directors that sits on my shoulders that's talking to me all the time, always trying to get me to do something. And many times it's not something I should be doing. And I have had to learn to manage that board of directors. The single most difficult person you'll ever have to manage in your life is yourself. And that's because of the voices that are talking to you. That, you know, you, you want to listen to the voices that, that help you live a fulfilling life, not to the ones that, that do damage. Your wife, Lynn, is an oncology social worker, right, Howard? Correct. So when my wife had breast cancer a few years ago, that was one of the first points of contact that we had was that that social worker and our heads were just spinning and we were scared and, and didn't know what to do. And that social worker was just a godsend and my wife's cancer free now, but I wanted to ask you, I think it's so interesting that, that your wife does that. So she consults people with cancer and I'm guessing that you've learned something yeah. from, from her work over the years. What is that? Um, you know, that some 16 year olds live a longer more fulfilling life than some 90-year-olds when they die. It's an interesting thing. I would have never thought that would be true, but it is. It is true. And 
I watched her deal with people. She, she really cared about her people, but she was able to separate herself, herself from that. From, yeah. She'd come home and she'd tell me about her day and the people she met and the struggle she had. You know, she'd go to sleep and I'm up all night long, you know, thinking about all that stuff because I couldn't do what she does. You know, she's retired now, but she still carries a caseload, amazingly enough, of people that need her help. But, you know, she just knows how to give of herself to care about others. I mean, she is an incredible person. And she's a hell of a lot smarter than I am. She's got a PhD, you know. I got a PhD, too, except mine because it given to me by a friend. You know, I, I didn't earn it. I got it as a gift. She, she earned it. But, you know, she's an incredible person. Another thing that she taught me, when we first got married, I thought my job was the man, the husband, to take care of my wife, right? But she didn't want that. She wanted to be independent. You know, she wanted her own checking account, her own check. And I, at the beginning, I thought, what is this all about? I'm the man, I'm, you know? And over time, came to realize how important it was for her to be free. Because if she was free, so was I. And so she taught me some valuable, valuable lesson about living life. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we should start to wrap this up, Howard. It's been such a such a meaningful conversation. You talked a little bit about boating. Is is one is you know I'd love to know what what's a perfect day for Howard Bihar at this stage in your life. Uh, perfect day for Howard Bihar would probably be it to be up in Anacortes in my little twenty foot skiff putting my crab pots down, right, and, and then coming back in and two hours later going out and getting the crab pots and have a limit. That would be a perfect day. <laughs> when you go into Starbucks today, Howard, what do you think? I'm incredibly proud and I'm still blown away. You know, of all the times I've been to Starbucks, I probably have had less than a half a dozen bad experiences. That's in the thousands and thousands of times. And I'm just incredibly proud of the people at Starbucks and, and what happened, you know? It's just been, it was an amazing experience. You could never have predicted it. And I'm proud of the values that we've tried to live by. And again, not perfectly all the time, but we're always trying to do the right thing. And so, you know, it's just, it's amazing. It is really an amazing thing. Never in my wildest dreams that I ever think that Starbucks would become what it's become. Well, a lot of people, Howard, would say it's become what it's become because of you. And Howard and Oren, and uh, it's it's a company that I think a lot of people are proud of, right? Yeah, and they should be. Well, thank you so much, my friend, for the time. It's always good to see you. Keep up the great work. Okay, Mark. Thank you. I'm Mark Wright. Thanks for listening to Beats Working, part of the Work P2P family. New episodes drop every Monday. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to show producer and web editor Tamar Medford. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from our Contributors Corner and Sidekick Sessions. Join us next week for another episode of Beats Working, where we are winning the game of work.